Good morning. Welcome to Celebration Church. Let's all stand together as our campuses join with us over in Appleton and Stevens Point via the live stream. And let's recite together the Apostles' Creed. This is our statement of faith. This is who we are and what we believe at Celebration Church. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Good to have you with us this morning. I'm Pastor Mark, pastor here at Celebration Church. So glad that you have joined with us. And again, good morning to those over in Appleton and Stevens Point at our campuses over there. And happy Easter. Woohoo! Amen. Still feels like winter's holding on somehow, but it's finally breaking anyway. This morning I want to read to you from Luke, the 24th chapter on this Easter Sunday morning, what happened on that Sunday morning some 2,000 years ago. This is after Jesus had been crucified, and on, then on Friday, and then on Sunday morning. He says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They were going to, uh, you're supposed to ceremonially prepare the body and stuff like for burial. Well, they were in such a hurry uh, because of the Sabbath that they quick just put him in there and said, we'll come back Sunday morning and, and finish up. So that's what they're doing. When we got there, they found the stone was rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. What's really fascinating about this whole thing is Jesus clearly told them what was going to happen, but they didn't get it. Because they really got to the point they didn't understand most of what he said. <laughs> you know, they were just, they were kind of confused. He'd talk about spiritual things and talk about parables. And so I think they got to a point where everything wasn't just really connecting. And then when these angels said, he told you this, remember, and all of a sudden, da, it dawns on him. Oh, that he was literally talking about this. This morning, I'll talk to you real briefly about the struggle that people experience to experience happiness in their lives. Now, the key to being unhappy helps us to understand what it means to be happy. Oftentimes, it's easier to look at the negative than the positive because most of us are well experienced with the negative in life. And the key to being unhappy is expectations. Let me give you an example. How many of you here would say that you're relatively happy with the car that you drive? I mean, it's not a Maserati or whatever, but, you know, it gets you from point A to point B. It does what it's supposed to do. You are relatively happy with your car. Let me see your hand. 
All right, most of you are. Now, imagine for a moment that this afternoon you discover that every single car exactly like yours gets 100 miles to the gallon. And you're going to go, what's up with that? How come my car doesn't do that? Now you go from happy to unhappy. Your expectations dramatically change, even though earlier you were completely content. This is what happens with people. Our expectations get out of whack. Now, there's no greater example of confused expectations than when it comes to people who are married. And uh, I have a little graph here this morning to help us look at, at this. Uh, I didn't quite get that straight across, but uh, this line we'll call happy, and this line we will call time. Now, based on the data that we see when it comes to relationships, um, we see a pattern. And so we're going to talk about that pattern that people see when they look at the statistics in people's lives. And keep in mind, these are averages. There's always exceptions. The truth is, there is no such thing as an average person because they take everything and boil it down to one, which pretty, pretty much doesn't exist. For example, they say in America, the average family has 2.1 children. I've yet to see anyone with a 0.1 child, and I don't even know what that looks like. <laughs> so at the end of the day, nobody's like that, but you get the idea. Anyway, so here's the basic idea. They say that when women marry, they tend to be extraordinarily happy. And the longer time goes, the less happy they become. Men, on the other hand, more realistic expectations. <laughs> they're happy, but they're not this drunken monkey happy. They're more, you know, like, they're, they're up there. And they tend to, now we're talking time here. This is probably a 20-year mark. Uh, tend to get more and more satisfaction from their marriages. The danger part is here. When they cross and one is dropping precipitously and the other one is getting better. If that is not corrected, there's going to be a problem. That's why most of the people that come to my uh, marriage events uh, tend to come, they're a little older, you know, in their 40s, 50s, 60s. People always say, oh, it's great that you help all these young couples with their marriages. Young couples, they still like each other, all right? <laughs> that's, that's not a problem. And, uh, and if you are young, you ought to come to my event in a couple of weeks. We'll prepare you for crazy down the line. But uh, so, so this is what happens. And this split happens, and then all this tension builds, and something has to give. Either they, they continue to go this way, and one of two things happens. Either they become M&Ms. I call them M&Ms, which means married and miserable. Or, or they end up in divorce, and everything completely uh, collapses and falls apart. The answer actually is for this person to change. Now, statistically, it's the woman. But a lot of people, again, this is just the averages. A lot of guys, it's the guys that are going down like this, and the wife's happy, and whoever is going down is convinced the one who needs to change is the happy person. It's his fault. It's her fault. No, the answer isn't to go to a happy person and make them miserable or make them less happy. The challenge is actually to take the person who's not happy and to change their expectations and to start changing 
the direction. And if they grow like this together, they, these are the people who stay married uh, for a lifetime without being M&Ms. They're actually happily married. Uh, now, the person who is not so happy doesn't really like to hear this. Usually in marriage, when I don't deal with couples, I try to identify who's the most miserable, and I focus mostly on them. <laughs> they don't like that because they're convinced it's the other person's problem. But you have to change your expectations. A lot of times people have unrealistic expectations. And it can, it can be male or female, just statistically it tends to be more female. Uh, and I, I got a, a, a letter from a lady who was describing her situation, and she was profoundly, immeasurably miserable and was begging for some advice from me. So I said, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sit down and, and write on a piece of paper all the expectations you have had for your marriage. And she did it. She sat down and wrote page after page <laughs> after page. Now, this is just inconceivable to a man. By the way, they do this at our church. We don't do this because I don't allow it. A lot of churches like to sit down with the girls and write down your idea of the perfect man. And they write page after page after page. Guys, we don't do this because it's a short list. <laughs> One, two, three, that's pretty much it. So then she sits down and she writes all this pages of this stuff. All right, all right, okay. Well, next step is I want you to take it and put it in a shoebox. So she takes it and puts it in a shoebox. Okay. Now what I want you to do is take the shoebox, go in the backyard, dig a hole, and bury it. So she grabs her husband, makes him dig the hole. <laughs> it's your fault you dig the hole. And, uh, and, go, and they dig it, and they bury it, and then they bow their heads for a moment of silence, like the cat being buried in the backyard. And then she moved on. She wrote me later, she says, I don't know what happened but I have never been happier in my life. We think oftentimes that the answer is to demand somebody somewhere somehow to help me realize my expectations, when in reality, we need to adjust our expectations. Expectations, particularly unrealistic expectations. And of course, nobody thinks their expectations are unrealistic, but in fact, most of them are. It is unrealized expectations that cause the problem. In the Old Testament, we read this verse out of Proverbs. Hope deferred, delayed, makes the heart sick. But a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. You see, when we don't get what we desire, it makes us what the Bible calls heart sick. And sadness starts to flood into us. Now again... One would think the answer is to get what you want, but often the answer is to adjust the expectations. And, and the real danger is, and, and you know, while this is about marriage and stuff, forget about it. The reality is in everybody's life, you are either on an upslope or a downslope, whatever. In fact, your marriage might be great, but overall your life still is on a downslope. Um, nobody really gets straight across. People think they might just being going straight across just because of the time. Again, we're talking decades here. But the reality is either you're becoming happier or less happy over time. And the real danger in this happiness slide is when unmet expectations transition us not just to unhappiness, but into a state of hopelessness. And hopelessness is a state that is very devastating indeed 
when you no longer feel any hope. You are at your weakest, you're at your most vulnerable, and that's usually when people start to check out, uh, sometimes literally, uh, because they have just surrendered. You know, in war, the side that loses hope is the side that surrenders. And when armies used to go to war, because it's kind of different today, we'll talk about that in just a second, but when they would go to war, they would hammer each other into oblivion until the one side yields. And oftentimes, not just on a particular battle. They might prevail in a battle. You know, one guy kills more than the other guys. But there's more battles to fight because there's always others coming. And it's not until the cost has been so high that the other side relents and they lose hope. When an army has lost hope, that is when they surrender. That is when they give up. That's what happened, for example, in World War II. Um, World War II was what? A four-year process. It was very short um, because we pummeled each other to the point that we completely and totally destroyed the enemy to where they lost hope and they gave up. This is generally how wars have been fought throughout all of mankind's history. And the casualties in World War II are just difficult to even to comprehend. 80 million people dead. Most of them civilians. Now you can't even begin to get your head around that. In fact, today people get upset because in whatever conflict, you know, thousands of people have been killed and they just get really upset. And I get it, nobody likes people dying. But uh, thousands of people dying was a morning in World War II, an afternoon, just over the night, 80 million. In fact, it's actually for people to become more angry at the idea that thousands of people have died in a conflict than to get upset about the idea of 80 million people dying in a conflict because all the fuses pop in your head. You cannot comprehend it. Now, thankfully, there's a good and bad in the situation today. The way we fight battles today is uh, we don't do that anymore. But it's one of the reasons why these conflicts never end. They just don't end. People say, wow, why is this taking so long in this war and terror? It's been how many years now? Well over a decade. Uh, World War II, we did it in four years. Well, that's because we went at it <laughs> until someone else yielded. We don't do that today. And what it takes for that to happen is really rather horrific. And again, that's how it's been done throughout uh, throughout history. Um, when you lose hope, even in a battle, in a situation, whatever group loses hope is the group that surrenders. And it's really interesting how many examples there are in the history of warfare of how many times a inferior group got a superior group to surrender because they would come at them in such a way or use such tactics or they were so intense that the larger group lost hope and they would surrender, and they'd come walking out, you know, a couple of hundred of them, and there's like 10 guys there <laughs> pointing guns at them. It's like, ugh, they had no idea, because that's what happens. When you, when you lose the hope, you give up. We read the story of Gideon in the Old Testament. Gideon was an amazing person. He went out against a massive army, tens of thousands of men, and uh, he had 300 men. Uh, and God said, I want you to go and fight these guys for 300 men. And God gives them all this insight in the 
way of fighting the battle. And what he did is he took the 300 men, and at night, of course, you know, it's very dark. There's no lights anywhere thousands of years ago. And he had the men spread out all over the side of this mountain, spread out, and they all had a torch. So on the queue, they held up their lit torch and blew a trumpet or whatever. And all of a sudden, the army wakes up, and they look, and they see these torches all over. Now, in their mind, that means there are tens of thousands of men on there with those few torches. When in reality, all that was there was the torches. (laughs) Well, the guys freak, and they start running and banging at each other, and they start fighting each other. They're killing each other, which if I'm going to go to battle, I vote for that version, you know. So anyway, they have this incredible victory, and they come in and wipe out the rest of them, all because of this mentality when you lose hope. Now, we have an enemy in our lives, and his name is Lucifer or Satan. He is in the world today. Now, some people say, well, I don't, I don't believe in the devil. <laughs> it doesn't change the fact. You uh, may say, you, you know, people say, I don't believe in something as if that erases it. Don't erase anything. You can say, well, I don't believe in gravity. So what? Doesn't change the fact that it's there. Well, there's evidence of gravity. Yeah, I think there's evidence of evil in this world. And it's pretty nasty and quite horrific. What men are capable of doing to each other is beyond comprehension. There is a spirit of evil in the world. Thank God for his grace to uh, help us overcome evil. But it's definitely there. And this is your enemy. I know you think your enemy is some person. Your mother-in-law is definitely your enemy, you know, or, or, or your husband, or your teenage demon-possessed children, or whatever it is. They're convinced that's the problem. When in reality, now, the devil will use people like this to drive you crazy, but the rea- reality, the Bible says our struggle is not against people. It's hard to comprehend because most of us are quite convinced our problem is people. Life would be great if it wasn't for people, all right? And so we become angry and bitter and unforgiving towards people. The Bible warns us about that. But that's not your enemy. Your enemy is the devil, and he wants to destroy your life. And as any great warrior in a battle situation uh, knows, the key to your total surrender is hopelessness. If he can get you to a point where you no longer have any hope, that's what he tries to do. And and this is happening dramatically even in our own country, in Western culture in general, but a lot in the United States. Suicide rates are climbing precipitously, and it's really quite shocking when you see the numbers. It's people get to a point of total and utter hopelessness. When you get to the point where you will take your own life, these are people who are convinced There is no hope. All they see is blackness. And of course, then the surrender flag goes up. Now, you might be wondering, what what does any of this have to do with with Easter? Well, well, actually, it has everything to do with Easter because of what happened on this morning some 2,000 years ago. The world was broken out of a constant cycle of hopelessness and awakened to the glory reality of hope. This is what happened. And what actually set the whole thing up was the uh, experience that happened this week that we've just celebrated, this holy week. I'm assuming I don't have another hour to preach here. 
You don't know if I'm looking at a clock. It says I have 55 more minutes to go. I'm pretty sure that's not true. Oh, you have another seven minutes. Oh, so now I got to speed it up. I've been dragging my feet. Slow down. All right, speeding it up. This is what happened this last week. Last week, we celebrated Palm Sunday. This is when people saw Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem. They're going, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're excited. They thought the Messiah was coming to liberate them from the Romans. By the end of the week, because it didn't happen, they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Why? Expectations. He didn't meet their expectations. See, in the Old Testament, there's all these prophecies of the Messiah. Can you hear me talking faster now? All these prophecies of the Messiah. And there were really two pictures of it. One was that he was suffering, and the other one that he was a great conqueror. And I don't think anybody quite got it. They probably figured he was a great conqueror, and along the way he suffered some. I mean, who knows what. When it turns out that he came the first time as a sufferer, but that is going to return again as a conqueror. See, we understand that now, but at the time, they didn't understand it. All they focused on was the conquering part because they wanted to get rid of the Romans. So when that didn't happen, they changed their attitude towards Jesus. Now, Good Friday is when they crucified Jesus. We had a great a Good Friday service here on Friday when we reflected on what happened that day. And can you imagine the devastation of these disciples? They've been following Jesus this whole time, and he's a rock star. He can do anything. He's healing people who can't see, people who can't walk, all of a sudden can walk. Dead people. If you're dead, I pretty much move on. But he would pray for dead people, and they'd wake up. Like, wow, this is nothing, nothing's impossible. And then all of a sudden, they're arresting him, beating him, nailing him to a cross, and they watch him die. Can you imagine the devastation they felt, the shock? I mean, it'd be like if, if you had a friend who was the strongest guy you ever knew, could lift weights, play football, nobody could tackle him, he was just an animal. And then one day he's walking along and a bunch of kindergartners jump on him and beat the snot out of him. <laughs> that would be shocking. Now the good news is you gotta go all the way to Peshago to find kids like that up there, you know what I mean? We're safe here. But I mean, how shocked, they were shocked! How is this happening? And the depression they felt, they had banked everything on this one man. And he's dead? How can he be dead? This is a, I'm sure they flat out expected that maybe he'd pop off the cross and destroy everybody. I mean, this, this was more than they could comprehend. And then on that Sunday morning, something unexpected happens. Something dramatic shifts. Something miraculous occurs. Jesus rises from the dead. Now, it's at this moment that the power of God is revealed in the life of Jesus. Up until this point, who is he exactly? We're not sure. Maybe he's just a good prophet. Maybe he's just a nice teacher. People still say that to this day. Hard to deny the existence of Jesus historically. I say, well, he was a nice fellow. He was a good prophet. But when you rise from the dead... You're a little different than everybody else, all right? And this is now, you say, well, other people raised from the dead. Yeah, but then they had to die again. See, that's the bad thing about getting raised from the dead. Because then you have to die again later. 
Really? I know. You ever think about that? I'm a sick person. I think about stuff like that. You know, like, you know they raised that guy from dead. Woo! And I think, oh, man, dude, he's got to go through that again. <laughs> if I die, just wrap it up, okay? Don't let anybody wake me up. <laughs> One shot, I'm done. All right, moving along. Nothing to see here. But when Jesus raises, it's a, it's a different type of resurrection. It's the permanent resurrection that someday we will all experience on that last day. Jesus is the first to do this. He's the firstborn, the Bible says, of the dead. And now he is awake, alive. And it's not that they just came and saw the tomb empty, that he appeared to them, talked to them. They sat with him. I mean, this is an incredible thing. It's at that point that we realize hopelessness never has to exist in the heart of a believer. Because it's never over. It's never over. Now, the enemy, remember, you're in a battle. You're in a war. And they're trying to get you to the point of hopelessness where you give up. But you have to remember, it's never over for us. It's never too far. It's never too late. Well, pastor, this happened and that happens too. I'm telling you, it's never too late. Easter teaches us nothing is impossible with God. If you want to truly be happy, well, you might want to adjust your expectations. It doesn't hurt. But it's to encounter the living Christ. Because with him, all things become possible. Everything changes. It's never too late. It's never hopeless. Even when it looks like it's over, it ain't over. And ain't no fat lady singing. You know? This is, it, there's, it never ends for us. We always have hope. We are filled with joyous expectation. And I'll tell you what, before I met Jesus in my life, I was definitely on a downward line. After I met Christ, boy, there was a change. And I've been climbing ever since. Now, again, this is over time, but my life is overwhelmingly through. I know what it's like to be miserable and unhappy. I used to be that way. But when Jesus came into my life, everything changed. And some people say, well, pastor, you know, I, I prayed and, and nothing happened. I'm still miserable. Well, it takes more than just one prayer. Okay? It takes a total commitment to receive Christ into your life and to stand together in that Glorious expectation is what keeps lifting us. Now, there's times where you feel a little knocked down and you get a little slapped up and stuff like that. But once you get back into the reality of who Jesus is, it lifts us up once again and continues to carry us onward and upward. It is never too late for us. You can't really experience this by coming at it casually is what I'm trying to say. It's when you get all in, as the disciples were all in. When you truly make that decision, I'm going to follow God in my life. I'm going to make Jesus a priority in my life. And this is why we continue to gather every Sunday. Not just today, we gather every Sunday. Why? To encourage, to build us up, to hear what hope there is in us, how to live a successful life. That's all what church is about for us. It's constantly encouraging each other. This is how you do it. This is how it works. And the more you learn, the more you realize, I can do this. I can do this because with him, all Things are possible. I'm going to invite our ushers to come as I have 48 minutes, 40, 48 seconds. I did it. Woo I caught up. <laughs> you are going to be here a long time. I'm going to invite all the ushers to come forward and get ready to uh, serve communion this morning. This is when we now turn our service and our attention to what Jesus did for us on that cross 2,000 years ago. His body was broken so that we could be made whole. 
His blood was shed so we could have forgiveness of sins. He was raised from the dead so that we could also have lives that are always being raised and no longer hopeless. We are filled now with an eternal hope, a glorious hope that never fades in any way, shape, or form. So I'm going to wait for our ushers to come forward here and get ready to serve the communion. If, uh, if you're a first-time visitor, you can certainly join with us. You don't have to be a member of our church. If you're a believer in Jesus, you can join with us in communion. All that we ask is that as they pass it, just take the bread and then the wine. Uh, or if you want grape juice, the outside ring is grape juice, but the rest of it's wine. But don't take it right away. Just hold it, and we'll take it all together after everyone is served. But before they do this, I want us to pray together this morning to make a commitment to turning our lives towards God so that he can fill us with his hope and his power. Let's bow our heads and pray this prayer together. Say, Dear Jesus, on this Easter morning, I open my heart to you. Take away my sins and fill me with your glorious hope. May your resurrection power transform my life today. Amen.